You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. Well, Pastor Steve is still on vacation, and so this morning I'm going to be preaching. Um, And for some of you, maybe you do know who I am. Maybe some of you just recognize my face. Maybe some of you have no idea who I am. I'm a complete stranger to you. If that's the case, I wanted to take some time to introduce myself briefly. My name is Gavin Barkas. I am the high school youth pastor here at Life Community Church. I joined our staff about a year ago, but obviously we were in the middle of a pandemic, and everything this year has just been a little chaotic, and so it totally makes sense if I haven't got the opportunity to meet any of you guys yet. But I wanted to let you know in this introduction that I am so excited to meet each and every single one of you one introduction at a time, but bear with me as there's a lot of you. And so with that, we can hop into our passage for today. We're going to be focusing on Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47. So if you want to get a head start, you can head there now. But before we do that, let me open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we come before you this morning praising you for who you are, for the good that we saw this week in VBS, and for the good that you bring this morning through your Holy Spirit. I pray for each person here that their hearts and minds would be open and ready for what it is that you have for them, and that we would leave this place knowing you better. God, we praise you for everything that you're about to do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So before we hop into Acts, I want to give a quick recap of what we've been going through the last five weeks. Over the last five weeks, we've been going through a series titled The Story of the Bible. And in this series, we're not looking at the Bible as a collection of different writings from different authors from different time periods, but instead we're looking at the Bible as a one big story all about the redemption of humans. And so to recap, in week one, we took a look at creation, and we saw why we were created in the first place. In week two, we looked at the fall, and this is where humans first messed up, leading us to being in need of redemption. In week three, we zeroed in on the law, and we saw that by comparing our lives to the law, we will never measure up. In week four, we looked at Jesus, and we saw that he is the redemption that we are so in need of, and we can be so thankful for him because of what he did for us. And then finally, last week, in week five, we looked at freedom, and we saw that because of Jesus, we are set free from the bondage of sin. And so that's where we are today. And today we're going to be focusing on community, specifically community in the church. And so many of you, there's, a, there's at least a chance that many of you in here are introverts. And so hearing that word community kind of makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little. No worries though, introverts, as I thought of you as I was writing this sermon. For some of you, community is probably a very scary thing. You would like nothing less than to be asked to be forced into a space which you don't know that many people and have to make small talk. Some of you, that might sound like a nightmare. Others in this room, though, there's a chance that community comes much more naturally. There's a chance that you go from one community setting to the next, and you're instantly looking for the next group of people that you can hop into. For those of you, you probably got really excited when you heard what this sermon's topic was. 
Well, to be honest with all of you guys, I fall into the introvert category. Crazy, right? How did a high school youth pastor who was an introvert come together? How did that all happen? Um, it's a long story, and when I meet you guys, I'd love to tell you it, but I don't have time now. Um, but all I can say is to God be the glory with that one. Anyways, there's days in which I wake up, and I, I really don't want to spend time with people. I don't have anything against people. It's just I enjoy silence, and I enjoy sitting in my thoughts. But despite that, I understand that community is necessary for my faith, and it's good for my health. And honestly, I think even on days in which I don't want to spend time with people, there's a handful of people that I still would be okay spending some time with. I don't, I don't mind spending time with a handful of people on every day. And I think that's because I was created in the image of God. I have a natural bent towards community because I was created in the image of God. I mean, think about it. Even God himself lives in community with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Every human, even the most introverted ones, will likely have some form of community that they find themselves in. And when we realize that, when we realize that we will find our way into a community one way or another, we have to make sure that that community is centered around Jesus, and it looks like what God had in mind for us at creation. Which leads us right into our big idea for this morning. Our big idea is going to be woven through everything that we talk about, and so it's something important. Maybe write it down at the top of the paper, whatever. Our big idea is this. Our need for community is natural, but divine fellowship is only found in Christ. So that's what we're going to be digging into today. So would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the passage that I mentioned earlier, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Some of you might already be there. If you're not, it's okay because it's going to be on the screen behind me. And so let's see what Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47 has to say. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so to give you some context, this passage comes directly after Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And in this sermon, he explained to a large crowd of people that Jesus had left the earth and in his place came the Holy Spirit. And at the conclusion of this powerful sermon, 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ and they received that Holy Spirit that Peter had mentioned. And so what we just read is this group of 3,000 plus people forming the first church in Jerusalem. They had formed a new community of believers, all with this newfound power that came directly from the Holy Spirit living inside of them. They were on fire for God, and they were living according to what the Holy Spirit was doing in their hearts. To say that this was a great godly example of community would be an understatement. And so today we're going to be taking a look at three different attributes that define this early church, that ultimately define um, godly community or this, this fellowship that we talked about in our big idea. And so taking a look at these three attributes, um, I think they're worth taking an in-depth look at because they happened to the early church because of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't them that did it, but the Holy Spirit living through them. 
But before we do that, it's important for me to draw your attention to something else. While this group was living with the Holy Spirit in them and it was growing wildly, I'm not calling you to drop everything and start acting exactly how this church was living. Now, even this group of Christians had to go back to the real world, as some might put it. They had to go get jobs and they had to form smaller groups of Christians. The model that we see this morning was not sustainable long term. But that's okay because I'm not drawing you or driving you to a spot or a a way that they were living. I don't want you to look at a specific situation that this early church found itself in. But instead, I want you to focus on the actions and the attributes in which they lived and interacted with the people around them because of the Holy Spirit living within them. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on today. And so let's dive into these three attributes that I mentioned earlier, and let's see what sort of actions and attributes that I'm talking about. And so we start off with attribute number one of the early church. They were devoted to foundational fellowship. We pull this idea from verses 42 and 43, specifically where it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And so let's talk about this devotion that this early church had. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, not just what the apostles were speaking in the moment, but also the Old Testament scriptures that many of them would have known by heart. They knew that these men, the apostles, had once walked side by side with Jesus, and because they wanted to know everything that, about Jesus, they listened to everything that the apostles had to say. They were committed to this new life, and they understood that the words the apostles spoke were not humanly words, but they were the truth from God. Not only were they devoted to the apostles' teaching, but they were also devoted to the fellowship. When we think of fellowship, oftentimes we think of something similar to a potluck. But this was not just some 3,000-person potluck where the early church sat around getting to know each other. No, if we were to define fellowship as to what it meant at this time when it was written about, we'd have to take a look at the Greek word koinonia. The word koinonia has a much different meaning than a potluck. It means this. To have a shared community that involves deep, close-knit participation among its people. This is much different than what we think of present day when we hear the word fellowship. To the early church, this devotion to fellowship was deep, it was close-knit, and it included them participating in it. If they were going to be a part of this fellowship, they were going to be all in or not in at all. You had to share in everything that the rest of the group shared in. You shared in the same Lord Jesus. You shared in the same guide for life. You shared in the same love for God. You shared in the same desire to worship him. You shared the same struggles, the same victories. You shared the same joy of communicating the gospel. And you shared the same job of living for him. Speaking of living for him, Jesus gave us a perfect blueprint for what community was supposed to look like even before the early church did. He did this in John chapter 13. And so if we take a look at John 13, verses 34 and 35, it says this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Suddenly committing to this fellowship was no longer just about loving God, but it also meant you had to love the people around you. The basics of Christianity could be boiled down to love God and love others. This divine fellowship that we're reading about here was established on 
this belief. They understood that for them to truly follow after Christ, they had to put this thought first and foremost above everything else that they were thinking. You could say that loving God and loving others was the foundation in which everything else in this passage was built upon. And so allow me to paint a picture for you. Think of a tree. Trees have roots. And these roots, while doing many great things for a tree, would be completely worthless if they did not build a strong foundation for the rest of the tree above it. The largest and most interesting tree in the world has a very unique root system. Um, This tree goes by the name of Pando because it's so large it was named. Um, And it's actually not one tree, but it's a whole aspen grove of trees that live in the same root system. They're all connected to the same roots. Pando is located in Utah, and it occupies a space of 108 acres of land. The tree weighs around 6,000 metric tons and has roughly 40,000 different trunks. A tree this large and complex needs a strong foundation. In the same way, this early church that had over 3,000 members and has since then grown into a religion with 2.4 billion people needed a strong foundation in which to build itself on. This foundation was this divine fellowship that we've been talking about. If we don't love God and love others, then we're stuck in our tracks and we can go no further. And so that's attribute number one of the early church. They were devoted to foundational fellowship. Moving on to attribute number two, we have to take a look at verses 44 and 45 of the passage, which say this, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And so pulling out of those verses, we get our attribute number two of the early church, which is they were committed to supportive unity. Again, to fully grasp what this means, I think it's helpful to define the key word, that key word being unity. Unity means to be joined as a whole. And so let me ask you this, when was the last time in which you sat in a group of people and you said, I am whole with each and every single one of the people people in this group? I'm willing to bet that does not happen very often. And why is that? Well, it's because we live in a culture that is very individualistic, and because of that, we have created some very polarized opinions. I'm willing to bet even in this room, we have some people with very polarized opinions. To give you some examples... Maybe you disagree with someone on here whether Coke or Pepsi is better. Maybe you disagree on whether reading is fun or reading is just plain boring. Maybe you disagree on whether pineapple belongs on pizza. For some, it's whether the beach or the mountains is the better of the two. On a more serious note, maybe you disagree with someone in here on how to parent. Maybe we disagree on politics. Or maybe we disagree over something like abortion laws. The list could go on and on, but the reality is, even within the church, we disagree on a list of things. Now, you might be wondering, where am I going with all of this? Well, remember, this whole attribute is all about finding unity within the church. And so let me ask you this, how unified are you with someone in which you disagree with? Are you able to be joined as a whole, as I put it earlier, with someone in which every time a certain topic comes up, the best you can do is agree to disagree? Not at all. And now, honestly, you might think of them as more of an an enemy than part of your community. 
But isn't that the opposite of loving one another? Didn't we just say that everything we believe in is built on loving God and loving others? So what do we do in this situation? Well, Jesus knew this was going to be happening, and so he prepared us for it in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, when he said this. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If we're truly committed to unity, then we have to find a way to love our enemies. The early church found a way. I'm sure they didn't all agree on all things, but the Bible tells us that they had all things in common. And they didn't just say these things. They weren't just words that they were speaking, but they lived them out. They were willing to sell their things to help those around them. They were supporting each other and building each other up, not because things were perfect, but because they were committed to this unity that they found in Christ. Ephesians 4 talks about unity in Christ, and it puts all believers into one body. But how effective can a body be if it's constantly attacking itself? If you're truly committed to unity, unity, then you have to take the time to face the hard disagreements. You have to face the, the conversations that are more difficult. You have to take the time to find a solution to these things that we're facing. That's surely easier said than done, but it's worth it because once we, we are unified, we can build each other up and we can help be a support to one another. And so if we go back to looking at the aspen grove that we mentioned earlier, while each tree trunk grows individually, they are never truly alone. You rarely find one aspen growing on its own, and that's because they thrive when living among other trees. Aspens, unlike any other tree, are able to give support to each other within the same root system. If one tree trunk becomes damaged or for some reason cannot attain the resources and nutrients that it needs to grow, the other trees in that same grove can send some of theirs in order to help that tree grow and survive. This is especially important when you realize that sometimes aspens grow in conditions which are harsher for a tree to live in. Let's say there's a region in which aspens grow and a wildfire goes through and wipes out all the trees in that area. Oftentimes, aspens are the first ones to grow back which is probably not because they're doing it on their, on their own. They're not trying to grow by themselves, but they are living as a unified group. It, the early church, in the same way, was living in a condition in which was harsher for them. The early church lived in a world which was harsh on Christians. But because of their commitment to supportive unity and this foundational fellowship that they were devoted to, they were able to thrive in it. Which leads us to our third and final attribute of the morning. Attribute number three of the early church. They displayed vibrant evidence. What evidence am I talking about? Well, let's take a look at verses 46 and 47. It says this. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so reading through that, some of the evidence that shows their devotion to fellowship and their commitment to unity would be, number one, the activities that they were doing. They together were attending the temple and breaking bread together. Number two, the attitudes that came with it, they had glad and generous hearts. And number three, the ways in which they affected the people around them. 
We see here that they had favor with all people, and they were adding to their number day by day. All of this is evidence that came because they were committed to their faith. But if you remember earlier, I didn't want us to focus on particular things that this church was doing, but instead I wanted to focus on the actions and attributes that they displayed because of the Holy Spirit that was living within them. They were unified, meaning that they loved each other well. And they did it with the right kind of hearts, meaning it was likely that they loved God as well as well. Their evidence came straight out of loving God and loving others. And so let's talk about this idea of loving one another. It's a phrase that we hear all the time, especially in the church. I even used it earlier in my sermon today. And while we did define it a little bit by talking about it means to become unified, I think it's worth hashing out just a little bit further. Paul, throughout the New Testament, probably talked the most about loving one another. It seems like in each one of his letters to the churches, he was giving us some sort of instruction on how to better love the members of our community. Paul understood that community was hard. And if we weren't given proper instruction on how to do it from God, we would probably do it incorrectly. Humans tend to make up their own ideas on how to do things, and so it's necessary that God shows us the correct way to do this. And so we're going to go real quick through a list of things that I am calling one another's. They're all from Paul's letters to the churches, and it looks at how we should love one another. And so the first one on this list is to welcome one another. This comes from Romans 15, 7, which says this, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We do it because Jesus did it, but we also do it because it brings glory to God. Simple as that. The next is submit to one another. Ephesians 5.21 tells us that because we are filled with the Holy Spirit and because it is the will of the Lord, we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. None of this submission is done out of fear or manipulation, but instead it's done out of honor and respect. Thirdly, serve one another. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Last week we looked at freedom and we found out that because we are free, we can voluntarily choose to serve those in our community. After that, instruct one another. Romans 15, 14 explains to us that from a place of goodness, we are able to instruct others. It's likely that God has given you some sort of knowledge on a certain topic in which he intends for you to share with someone else. And so when you are prompted to share that, share it boldly. Following that, we have forgive one another. Ephesians 4.32 says that to us in the same way that Christ forgave us, we are also able to forgive others out of the kindness and tenderness of our hearts. I think this is one that sometimes we in the church would rather forget, but when we realize just how much we have been forgiven, there's no way we could ever forget this one. After that, we have pray for one another. This is found in James 5.16, and it comes directly after confessing our sins to each other. What good is it being in a community unless they help you in areas in which you're lacking? After that, bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6.2 tells us that this not only shows love to your friend, but it fulfills the law of Christ. 
Following that, encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us that because we are alive in Christ, we can encourage each other and build each other up. And finally, the last one another this morning is to stir up one another. Hebrews 10 verse 24 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. By stirring up each other, we bring more love, and hopefully that cycle just keeps on continuing. These nine things are the evidence that shows our love for God and our love for others. And it doesn't just show inside the church, but it also shows outside the church. This is why the early church was growing at such a rapid pace. Imagine you saw a church that did all nine of these things well. You, too, would want to be a part of it. Loving one another can be thought of as a form of evangelism in itself. I'm not saying that evangelism is not necessary, but I'm saying in some instances, just loving the people around you helps bring other people to know Jesus. And so to wrap up this illustration that we've been using of the aspen groves this morning, I want to take a look at the leaves. Likely the first thing that you saw when you saw these leaves, or these trees were their leaves. They're bright, they're flashy, they grab your attention. But the truth is, the leaves could never exist if the strong roots and the supporting foundation underneath it were not well. The foundation to the tree and the supports of the upper half has to grow first in order for the leaves to ever get to the point in which they grab your attention. In the same way, the only reason this early church had all this vibrant evidence that drew people in and led to their salvation in the first place was because of their foundational fellowship and supportive unity that they shared in the body of Christ. But they did it well, and they flourished because of it. Do you remember how I started my sermon this morning? I was talking to those of you here in this room who were maybe not so fond of this community idea. Those of you in this room who are introverted, who community does not come as naturally to as some of our extroverted friends. Maybe after everything that we've gone through today, you still don't know what to do. Or maybe you know what to do, but it still sounds really hard, sounds really scary. Well, allow me to hopefully encourage you with a quote from a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you're not sure of who Bonhoeffer is, he was a religious leader in Germany during the reign of Hitler. Bonhoeffer openly opposed Hitler and what he was doing to the Jews, and because of it, Bonhoeffer was thrown into prison. He spent 18 months in prison, and all the while, he was leading his church back home and leading other religious movements until the time of his death. This was a man committed to his community. So let's keep this in mind as we read this quote. This was a man who knew extreme levels of community as well as extreme levels of solitude. Here's what he had to say. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound perils and pitfalls. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings, and the one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. What Bonhoeffer is saying is that both community and solitude are necessary. But what church is capable of balancing both community and solitude? 
What church is capable of flourishing as well as the early church did? What church is capable of loving one another to the standard that Paul wrote about? What church is capable of standing in unity despite their disagreements? The only answer I can give to those questions would be a church that is fully centered around Christ. And so let's go back to our big idea that we talked about this morning. We said our big idea was our need for community is natural, but divine fellowship is only found in Christ. Whether you really like community or maybe you don't like it at all, it should point you back to Jesus. We said that community should be founded on our love for God and our love for others. But in reality, another way of looking at community could be this. Community is just another way for God to love you through the use of others. Let's pray in closing. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for community. Whether we like it or we don't, God, we're thankful for what it does in our lives. And God, we're thankful for this community right now that we're a part of. I pray that we would always put Jesus at the center of it and that we would follow after the leading of the Holy Spirit. I pray for each of us as you were, your Holy Spirit was stirring in our hearts today, that as we leave this community and go into the next, that we would also lead well and point those in that community towards Jesus. God, we thank you for what you're starting to do, what you've been doing. We pray for each community that we're going to be a part of. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.